informing America's farmers and ranchers. This is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Jesse Allen. Well, hello and thank you for joining us here today on AOA, Agriculture of America. Great to have you along for the conversation. I'm your host, Jesse Allen. Thanks for being with us here today. we got a lot to get to on the show. We're going to talk with the Executive Director of the Plant-Based Products Council, James Glick, in Segment 2. In Segment 3, we'll look at the latest milk production report and talk the dairy trade and more with Robin Schmall from Ag Dairy. Also, have a look at some of the uh, news headlines uh, here at the end of the program. But first up, we want to get an update on the situation at the Mexico border with the U.S. As we've seen, Customs and Border Protection close the El Paso and Eagle Pass, Texas rail crossings, and it's having a big impact right now. Joining us with the latest, he is the president and CEO of the National Grain and Feed Association. Mike Seifert is with us. Mike, great to talk with you again. Thanks for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me back on, Jesse. Always happy to visit with you. Well, Mike, uh, you know, uh, not necessarily a Christmas present that I think anyone in ag wanted to see here. Uh, as we've seen the rail crossings, El Paso and Eagle Pass uh, closed here. Uh, and this is uh, this has become a major issue in just a matter of days as uh, U.S. Customs and Border Patrol has announced it would temporarily close these crossings. Uh, get us up to speed. What exactly is the latest here? What is going on? What's the impact we're seeing right now, Mike? Yeah, so you know where where we're at, um, and I will say this this came very short notice. We, um, I actually heard from one of the railroads about six o'clock um, Sunday night um, that said, "Hey, we just found out about this." And where we are right now, um, since eight eight a.m. on Monday morning, the Eagle Pass, Texas, and El Paso, Texas rail crossings have been closed by CBP and Customs and Border Patrol. And you know our understanding is that. What they're saying is they pulled those uh, those officers, those those federal agents, off of the rail bridge crossings to to work with to address the, the migrant crisis down on the border. And I want to make clear: I don't think any of us um, in, in the ag community, NGFA members, discount um, you know, what's going on, the humanitarian toll um, down down on the border. I want to make clear that, but. I think our concern here is that, uh, particularly from an agricultural you know standpoint, we're looking at what is the number one market uh, for U.S. corn and wheat, and the number two market uh, for soybeans and I believe soybean meal. Basically, in many instances, you know, a uh, significant amount of traffic goes through those those two uh, rail crossings, um, and, and no longer able. Uh, to move, mm-hmm. um, and you know about about two two thirds of all of our exports um, go to Mexico uh, from an ag perspective via rail, uh, approximately two thirds. And I think you know it, it's that holiday season. You know we've all been in the car when uh, the kids are in the back seat and they drive us crazy. And so you take the hard right or the hard left to the exit and you get off the road. And uh, I guess maybe. Uh, the folks in Washington are the kids in the back seat, and CBP got tired of uh, them making decisions. But the problem is that you know you can't make a hard right and a hard left with these uh, with these freight trains and these grain shuttles, and so now we're we're really bottled up. It's our understanding um, that there are grain shuttles um, which are holding at origin or stuck somewhere along the way in, in at least six states right now. Mm. Um, we, uh, we, uh, and, 
and um, those are double-digit uh, number of trains, is our understanding. And and we're not a hundred. We don't know for sure what's on all those trains, but but we we do know that that there are trains that are loaded with beans, corn, and wheat um, that are all held up uh, currently. Um, so obviously, you have that challenge. Um, back you know uh into the heartland here here in the u.s but mm-hmm. i think what folks forget is that this is really a north american market um this is an interconnected market uh u.s mexico uh canada and the rail systems are it's not a u.s canadian or or a mexican rail system it, it's a north american rail system and by doing this at the border um, you begin to jam up the whole system, and, and we know the challenges that can develop there. But what we're also seeing is that, particularly on, on the Mexico side of the border, number of feeders, uh, livestock operators, poultry operators down there that really depend on the U.S. exports, the U.S. market to supply them, and uh, have their operations set up on the assumption that we are going to have a reliable and a resilient um export system here in the U.S., particularly as it, as it goes on rail. And, and what we're hearing now is that a um, number of feeders in Mexico we're hearing uh, are hitting critical status um, on, on their feed levels. And a really a real worry um, that if we get into the weekend and early next week on this, um, that some really uh, difficult decisions are going to have to be made um, as it relates to some of those livestock and some of that poultry. And mm-hmm. you know, your li- your listeners understand what I'm talking about, and and they understand the decisions that no uh, no owner, no operator, no producer wants to have to make. But that if you don't have feed for your animals, you got to start making them pretty quick. And um, we're we're sort of working hard, and we're trying to get that information to everybody we can in Washington who's in charge of making these decisions. Well, Mike, that's a great point you bring up. I know uh, there's been a lot of movement with ag groups here on this issue the last few days. Talk about that. You know, we had a letter that was signed by 46 members of the uh, Agricultural Transportation Working Group yesterday mm-hmm. um, that we sent to to DHS Secretary Mayorkas and, and up to the Hill and other administration officials. And basically the question we had was, if you shut down the flow of commodities, which are basically the majority used for human or animal food in Mexico. And you create food issues and livestock depopulation in Mexico, which will eventually lead to food inflation and probably further instability in Mexico. How does that help or address the problem that you're trying to fix or address down on the southern border? Yeah. Um, and And I think that's something that's a a question that needs to be asked um and uh, you know it's not pointing a political finger that's just a question that needs to be asked the other question we're asking is as, as we have talked with uh the railroads and we've talked with officials on both sides of the border uh we've been told in no uncertain terms that the migrants are not crossing the border on these trains you know you've seen pictures of, of migrants on the trains coming through mexico or different things but they're not passing the border on the trains. There, it's our understanding that there is a hundred percent inspection both sides of the border um, as these trains are coming through. Um, there's a significant security presence, and you know, uh, I believe one of the U.S. railroads has said that with the employees they have on the ground and their security employees that they're willing to put in place, 
that CBP ha- can and has been able to run these r- rail crossing bridges with only four or five FTEs in place at each mm-hmm. one. Mm-hmm. And I think a question we all have is how, if you can really run these crossings with four or five FTEs, how are pulling those four or five people off at any given time really addressing the bigger crisis that they're trying to deal with down on, on the border while at the same time you're shutting down what UP has said has said is a $200 million a day hit on the U.S. economy. That doesn't make a lot of sense to our membership. Now, it's definitely a, a tough situation to watch, and there's a lot that's uh, got to be unpacked here. We're going to continue to follow this, and we do appreciate uh, the time here today. With that, President and CEO of the National Grain and Feed Association, Mike Seifert. Mike, thanks for joining us on AOA. Merry Christmas to you and yours. We'll talk to you again soon. Merry Christmas to you as well. Thank you. We'll be back with more here on AOA right after this. The average American eats 250 eggs per year, which translates to a total annual consumption of 76.5 billion eggs in the U.S. About 60% of eggs produced here in the U.S. are used by consumers, and about 9% are used by the food service industry. A chef's hat is said to have a pleat for each of the many ways you can cook eggs. The color can range from white to deep brown. Hens with white feathers and earlobes lay white-shelled eggs, while hens with red feathers and earlobes lay brown-shelled eggs. Because breeds that lay brown eggs are typically slightly larger birds, they require more food, making brown eggs usually more expensive than white. You can tell whether an egg is fresh or stale by dropping it in water. A fresh egg will sink, but a stale one will float. Eggs also contain all the essential protein, minerals, and vitamins, and egg yolks are one of the few foods that naturally contain vitamin D. And eggs are also good for your eyes because they contain lutein, which helps prevent age-related cataracts and muscle degeneration. These farm facts brought to you by the American Ag Network. Every day, our brave military men and women, along with their families, make tremendous sacrifices for our freedom. Patriotic Hearts, a nonprofit organization, is dedicated to supporting these heroes and their families in their times of need. By donating your unwanted car to Patriotic Hearts, you'll be supporting job transition and job fair programs, veteran entrepreneurship, counseling, and retreats for combat veterans and their spouses. Call 800-560-3870. You'll receive a tax deduction and we'll arrange a free pickup at your convenience. Imagine the difference you can make in the lives of those who have given so much for our country. Your car donation will directly impact military families, veterans, providing them with the support they desperately need. Call 800-560-3870. You can become a part of something bigger. Join us in our mission to uplift and honor our military community. Call 800-560-3870 to donate your unwanted card. Being blind doesn't always look how others may think. Stargard disease was supposed to define me. Retinitis pigmentosa aimed to overwhelm my family. It tried to cut me down. A blinding eye disease attempted to force me away from doing what I was born to do. But it cannot stop me. I have the tools. I will keep moving forward. Pushing past the limits of this disability. I know where to find support and where I can be seen. Loss of sight won't blind our vision. Innovative research, educational resources, supportive community. The Foundation Fighting Blindness is leading the charge in finding treatments and cures for blinding diseases. Learn more at fightingblindness.org. A public service message 
from the Foundation Fighting Blindness. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed. AOA. Now back to Jesse Allen. And welcome back to AOA, Agriculture of America. Joining us now, we are having a conversation with the Executive Director of the Plant-Based Products Council. Joining us here today on the program, James Glick is with us. James, thanks for making time to be with us on the show. I hope you're doing well. Thanks, Jesse. Happy to join you. Well, let's jump in first and uh, give us some background on the uh, PBPC, the Plant-Based Products Council. Uh, tell us a little bit about what are some of the things that you guys do and handle uh, there with the council, James. You bet, Jesse. The Plant-Based Products Council um, you know, is based in Washington, D.C., but a lot of the work that we do is, is on promoting and uh, educating policymakers and, and folks in the industry on products that are made from plants. Um, so that's, you know, some of your industrial products. Think about housewares, uh, some materials, uh, construction materials, fabrics. Uh, so a whole range of things that we use in our, our daily life um, that uh, that are made based on, on folks that grow crops here in the U.S. And I know uh, you guys have a lot of uh, a lot of great stuff to talk about, as you mentioned. A lot of those different products, household products, et cetera, et cetera. There's a there's no shortage of things that are created in this country uh, from plants, right, James? That's exactly right. I mean, everything from uh, you know you know some of the the, the lubricants and, and materials we use on the farm to to some of the fabrics that folks wear, from athletic wear. Um, you, you look at a whole range of, of that spectrum that's made from from plant based products. Well, I know you guys have an annual conference coming up. We're going to talk about that here in a second. But I, I want to talk about Farm Bill priorities uh, with you first. Uh, from the uh, council's perspective, I know, of course, we're still trying to get a new five-year Farm Bill done. We got the 2018 Farm Bill extended. Uh, talk to me a little bit about some of the council's Farm Bill priorities. What are you guys looking for in terms of this new five-year Farm Bill, James? You bet, Jesse. And I think excited to see that there was a farm bill extension that gives all of us in farm country and those of us who who uh, kind of work in the sector certainty for the next year until until uh, a longer five year bill is done. But a couple of the priorities that that we're working on, um, you know, there there are two marker bills that we've got both in the House and Senate uh, that kind of outline those priorities. One of those is the Biomanufacturing and Jobs Act. Uh, one of those is the Biomanufacturing and Jobs Act. Um, it, it, this legislation essentially would prefer the existing bio-preferred program at USDA. It's a program that has been in existence uh, for about 20 plus years. And so this is not new, novel and different, but uh, every five years is a chance to, to improve and, and build upon um, those products that are labeled as, as, as made from plants. And that's a bio-preferred label that USDA manages. Um, so we're excited about the co-sponsors in, in the House and Senate. Um, and, and then the other kind of legislation that we're really focused on, the other marker bill, is the Ag Bio Act. Uh, the Ag Bio Act also improving upon existing authority, uh, looking at uh, a program that that really uses um, kind of loan funds, and, and and we would suggest also grant funds to help encourage construction of pilot facilities, retrofitted pilot facilities, and demonstration facilities to really help this industry continue to grow. Uh, we're at a, a space in, in development where there's a lot of innovation happening, um, but it's often the case um, when you're trying to grow bigger, uh, it, it's hard to do that in, in the U.S. And so we see some of the, the those opportunities move overseas um, when they go to that pilot and scale up phase. And so uh, this priority would, would help uh, provide some resources from USDA targeting loan funds and, and grant funds to help the industry grow. 
uh, on that pilot and, and, and pilot scale. I would wonder as well, and I was doing a little bit of reading on the uh, PBPC website, pbpc.com, and looking at some of your Farm Bill priorities too. Uh, talk to me about just some of the uniformity in terms of uh, product terminology definitions. I'm sure that is a, a, a big aspect here. It's just trying to make sure that there's kind of, I guess, cohesiveness, so to speak, in terms of the terminology that is used, right, James? That's exactly right, Jesse. I mean, I think um, when you're in a space that's got a lot of innovation happening, that's new, novel, and, and different, um, and continuing to grow and change, you know, folks have different understanding of different terms. And so I think it's important that as the industry grows, that the marketplace coalesces around what those terms look like. So working with folks on on Capitol Hill to, to help clarify some of that terminology um, and, and using the Farm Bill potentially as a vehicle for doing that. Uh, and so I think I think too, uh, there probably comes some education comes with that as well, James, as terms of, you know, folks look at certain things a little bit differently than other folks in terms of terminology. I think there, there's probably a great deal of education that kind of goes uh, together with that as well. Education is a big part of what we do and a big part of what USDA does. I, I mentioned the BioPreferred program. Uh, the, the term, the, the label has been around for 20 plus years, uh, but it really just in the last probably five years or so that folks have taken notice and really recognize what BioPreferred means and, and, and continue to educate folks throughout the value chain uh, about that term that it means you know, grown from, from kind of plant-based, bio-based materials um, and, and what that content looks like. What are some other priorities uh, for the Plant-Based Products Council here? Obviously, Farm Bill is a big one. We can get a lot of things done with the Farm Bill. But what are some other things that the council is is looking at or working on, especially as we look to move uh, into 2024, James? Yeah. yeah, a big part of what we do is, is, is kind of that education effort we talked about up and down the value chain. And, and one of the tools for that is our conference. Uh, we have a conference coming up in uh, April of 2024. Um, we're excited about it. The first ever conference was held last year in the Beltway inside Washington, D.C. And so we're excited this year to be moving uh, the conference to Omaha, Nebraska, moving you know outside of Washington. But really an opportunity to connect with with folks across that value chain from the growers to, to, to policymakers and every point in between branded products that, that use plant based products, um, kind of some of the uh, industry leaders and, and the innovators and university community, uh, community. And so, again, it's April 8th through the 10th in Omaha. And folks can learn more about that on our website, www.pbpc.com. And I know with that annual conference, too, you guys have a lot of great uh, sponsors and partners who jumped on board there uh, throughout the ag industry, as you uh, alluded to. So, again, uh, find more details at uh, pbpc.com for that annual conference. And, uh, James, uh, really great stuff. Before we let you go here today, Anything final you would share about some of the things going on right now with the Plant-Based Products Council? Yeah, maybe a couple of quick things, Jesse. We're excited about the conference, as I mentioned. You know, sponsors that you highlighted, everyone from Iowa Corn Promotion Board, Nebraska Corn uh, Board, the Bio Nebraska Cargill Corn Refiners, Nature Works, so a whole host of the value chain there. Um, some of the speakers we'll have are CEOs of, of some companies in the space, um, folks who use everything from seaweed, uh, some, some growers, uh, so more conventional uh, kind of corn and soy perspectives, uh, folks who are looking at uh, kind of apparel um, and so made from renewable products. So a, a range of, of, of CEOs and, and others on panels as well. Uh, Jesse, the other thing that I might mention is um, kind of some, some consumer research we've done recently and pretty exciting to see that, uh, that over 80 percent of, of the folks surveyed of stakeholders of, of, uh, of consumers have an interest in plant based products. 
Um, and so that's, I think, a pretty big statistics from where you said that the folks are familiar with products that are made from plants and uh, that, that a majority of Americans are, are favorable toward these products. Um, you know, 62 percent, uh, 60 plus American percent of Americans, you know, um, are, are really interested in purchasing those types of products as well. So I think a good opportunity for those of us in, in, in agriculture to look at new market opportunities when you look at consumers are demanding these types of products that are, that are developed uh, from bio-based products. Well, James, if folks want to uh, look at some of those studies and research and education and more, again, I would have to think uh, a lot of that is available on your guys' website, right? It is, Jesse, www.pbpc.com for information on the, the studies, uh, kind of our farm bill priorities, as well as uh, as well as the convention. Fantastic. Executive Director of the Plant-Based Products Council, James Glick. Thanks for joining us here today on AOA. Really appreciate the time. We'll look forward to having you back on again soon. Sounds great. Thanks, Jesse. Once again, James Glick, Executive Director for the Plant-Based Products Council. Again, learn more at pbpc.com. Again, that's pbpc.com. All right, uh, got about a minute here before we hit the break. I want to run through some of the uh, latest in retail fertilizer prices. They were mixed again in the second week of December, according to sellers surveyed by DTN. Like last week, prices for five of the eight major fertilizers were lower than last month, and prices for the remaining three fertilizers were slightly higher. DTN designates a significant move as anything 5% or more. Two fertilizers had noteworthy price moves compared to last month. Both urea and UAN28 were down 6% compared to last month. Urea had an average price of $540 per ton, while UAN28 was $339 per ton. Prices for the remaining three fertilizers were down just slightly. DAP had an average price of $713 per ton, 10340 at $595 a ton, and UAN32 at $409 a ton. Prices for three fertilizers were just slightly higher compared to last month as well. MAP had an average price of $819 a ton, Potash at $517 a ton, and Anhydrous at $851 a ton. On a price per pound of nitrogen basis, the average urea price was $0.59 cents a pound, anhydrous $0.52 cents a pound, UAN28 at $0.61 cents a pound, and UAN32 at $0.64 cents a pound. Again, that is a rundown of the retail fertilizer prices for the week from DTN. All right, coming up next, we are going to take a look at the latest milk production report and get some thoughts on the dairy market and the livestock market in general. Robin Schmall with Ag Dairy, a division of John Stewart and Associates and AgMarket.net. He joins us next as we're back with more here on AOA, Agriculture of America, on the way right after this. Non-attorney paid spokesperson. Could your house go into foreclosure? Are you behind on your mortgage payments? Does it seem like the bank has no interest in helping you save your home and you feel like you have nowhere to turn for help? Then we have good news for you. Foreclosure Protection Services can help save your home as they specialize in foreclosure assistance. That's all they do. If you're behind on your mortgage payments, being threatened with foreclosure, have been denied a loan modification, or been the victim of a predatory loan, it's critical that you call Foreclosure Protection Services now at 800-926-1701. Their network of attorneys and their agents are available to speak to you now. If you're behind on your mortgage payments, Foreclosure Protection Services can help stop the foreclosure process. Call today before it's too late. New laws are in effect and may save your home. Call Foreclosure Protection Services now at 800-926-1701. 
800-926-1701. That's 800-926-1701. Let's take a look at what's happening in the markets here on this Friday on AOA. Jesse Allen with you here as we look at grain and livestock trade. It's pretty quiet and mixed, especially in the grains. A couple of cents either side of unchanged here across the board. While we see a little bit of green on the screen in cattle and hogs with hogs actually leading the way. Got some big reports out later today in the livestock trade. Cattle on feed, quarterly hogs and pigs, and cold storage reports all out at 2 p.m. Central Time. So maybe a little bit of uh, positioning ahead of those reports here in cattle and hogs. Cash cattle country is pretty quiet here. Most of the northern business looks like it's done for the week, but we still could see some business in southern feedlots here as we work through the day today. Now, in the case of this grain trade, overall, we're watching South American weather. That remains the Biggest focus here as we work through the end of the year. Watching showers expected to continue to expand across Argentina's grain belt into early January. While in Brazil, we're seeing rains, but the picture's a little bit more unclear as traders are going to wait to see if the rains do verify during this critical pod set time for soybeans in Brazil. Overall, though, this market just uh, largely kind of chopping around here with low volume as we head into the holiday weekend. And moving forward, we're going to watch the situation in South America with weather, but also watching the ongoing situation along the U.S.-Mexico border in terms of the rail path closures that is backing up a lot of rail cars and a lot of trains with goods on it that would move between the U.S. and Mexico. A lot of folks in agriculture upset about this situation, and it is something that bears watching here as we head into the holiday weekend. Overall, corn, soybeans, and wheat, again, really about a penny or two either side of unchanged with a little more strength than soybeans. Cattle and hogs trading slightly higher. Crude oil up 93 cents a barrel, 74.02. This is AOA. I'm Jesse Allen. Kids across America are going to school hungry. Millions of kids every day. Hungry kids get sick more often and can struggle in school. It can be harder for them to focus and learn. But one simple thing can help change all of this for a hungry child in America. Good healthy food and the energy it brings. With help from caring people across America, No Kid Hungry is providing healthy meals and hope to hungry kids so they can build better futures. We want to ensure that all of our kids have healthy meals every day. Thank you. Thank you for helping feed our kids. To learn more about ending child hunger in America, go to helpnokidhungry.org today. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, AOA. Now back to Jesse Allen. And joining us now for a conversation about the dairy market, the latest milk production report, and more. He is with Ag Dairy, a division of John Stewart Associates and AgMarket.net. Robin Schmall is with us. Robin, thanks for joining us on the AOA today. Hope you're doing well. Yeah, doing well, and thank you for inviting me to come on. Well, Robin, let's take a look at that milk production report first. It looked like milk production down slightly in the month of November. As you take a look at the numbers, what are some of the key things that stand out to you? What are some of the key factors? I think some of the key factors would be the cow numbers of the decline from 
uh, November from October to November, mm -hmm. we were down 10,000 head in the U.S. And that's a sizable number that we haven't seen again for a while. Um, stands to reason based on our lower prices that we're looking at again, but but yet um, that's probably we have to see more of that really in order to get support under this market. The down 0.5 percent in the 24 states, 0.6 in the in the U.S. really is not a big issue off of this report. So you can view this report as a little friendly, but the interesting thing when we're breaking down the numbers a little bit is. <clears throat> the um it's the lowest count numbers that we've had since june of 2020. wow but then the lowest milk production monthly milk production only is back to february of this year so we're seeing we have seen the strength in the production per cow uh, but the production per cow is the lowest since november 2021 so we're seeing the we're, we're we have been seeing stronger production per cow making up for some of the uh, decrease in the overall herd. Um, so that's why part of partially why we're not seeing the strength that we might have seen or we did see uh, based on how the market was moving at the end of 2021, which got real concern over a tight milk market. Well, I, I think about those numbers and interesting points uh, you bring up, uh, thinking about the the tight milk number and some of those lowest numbers since 2020. And I, I look at this dairy market in general here towards the end of the year, Robin, and we've seen our fair share of volatility uh, throughout class three milk futures, throughout cheese prices, butter, et cetera. Uh, talk to me a little bit about this, this trade overall here as we near the end of the year. Can we expect this volatility to continue? Do you think, what are, what are you looking at right now? Yeah, I think we'll see volatility, but I think it's going to be muted relative to what we did see, especially in the butter market. Um, we're, you know, butter was has been climbing a little bit lately, but you know, you have some fill-in buying. They come in a little more aggressively once that fill-in buying is satisfied. I, the price drops back again. Uh, cheese has been struggling a little bit more. I think we're going to see the volatility, but it's going to be a muted volatility relative to what we had because for one reason, especially in the cheese side of it, manufacturers are not holding on to cheese. They want to move this product. They don't want to pay storage on it. They want to move this product through the end of the year. So they're not banking on, oh, maybe we're going to see a surge in demand. Maybe we're going to be able to get another 20 cents a pound or so out of this cheese in the next month. They're not looking at it that way. They're, the, the overall attitude is, is really not positive, at least for the foreseeable future, um, but they're moving it. And uh, demand has been good, but not good enough. And the real impact probably overall that we've seen is just the slower exports. So uh, through the end of the year, I don't think we're going to see a whole lot of trend being developed any way or the other. And then we move into the first part of the year, which normally is a slower demand period. Um, some inventories start to be built. And um, we're going to end the year potentially with inventory similar to the end of last year. Uh, so there's just not a lot underneath that market to get traders excited right now. Oh, good thoughts uh, there, thinking about that, and, and I'm glad you brought up getting into next year, because I think we can segue our conversation a little bit to 
you know, what's it going to take to rebuild this cow herd? I think on, on the cattle side, the beef side, what's it going to take to rebuild our beef herds as well as we got very low numbers uh, on that side of the equation. What are your thoughts there? I mean, what are we looking at in terms of starting to maybe rebuild our, our cow herd for, for dairy and, and our beef herd in general as we get into next year? Is it going to take a while, Robin? What do you think? Yeah, I think it's going to take a while. I think uh, we've come off the high prices in the, in the, in the beef herd, and uh, there was a real push there to try to to somewhat, well, I shouldn't say maybe a real push to somewhat, you know, increase uh, potential for cow numbers because with the high prices, there were a lot of these females that were getting slaughtered. So even with the decrease we've had in the drought situation uh, on, the, on the beef herd, I mean, we're really looking at a slow rebuild potentially, and it's probably going to take more than this next year to do that. Um, but Along with that, we can't get too bullish. And what I mean by bullish is that we're going to move back up to $200, you know, or anything because uh, it's the demand driven. And, and mm -hmm. that's where we are right now. And, and when we've looked at box beef prices over the last few months, they've actually been trending lower. So that's an indication of a little bit slower demand. Part of that because of the higher interest rates. Uh, maybe a little bit less disposable income, uh, change in eating habits, maybe a little bit lower restaurant traffic, which we hear that back and forth, and some of that depends on the location. Uh, and and then so that's going to take a while. But like I've like I tell some of my customers and stuff is <clears throat> when they ask about well how come prices are so low because cow numbers are tight and and I tongue-in-cheek, I said, well, if there's only one cow left in the country and nobody wants it, the price is too high. But I'm not going, <laughs> going to that extent. <laughs> but I think we're going to find a balance in here, and I think we might see some stronger beef prices as we move along here. But revisiting the highs we had before, I think is going to be very difficult to achieve. And we're looking over on the dairy side, it's going to be interesting rebuilding that herd because we've had a large push for beef on dairy because of the high prices. And what I'm hearing from customers and other dairy farmers out there that have done some expansion or whatever, heifer supplies are tight and they're higher priced. And I think that's a result of this more of a push to beef on dairy. And that's not going to change anytime real soon uh, so I think on our biannual uh, inventory report we're going to have at the end of January, uh, we're going to see tight, tighter heifer numbers, the ratio to, to dairy cattle, like we saw in the July report, where we saw like the lowest um, ratio of heifers to cows, I believe, I don't have it in front of me now, but I believe since like 2003, and I think part of that is because of that, because we did have sex semen. And when the sex semen came on board, we had all of a sudden we had a lot of heifers mm -hmm. and we had lower prices. And now with the beef on dairy, the lower producers in the herd or less productive cows, let's say, or less genetically good cows have been bred to the beef on dairy. And I think we're going to start seeing, and this is just maybe a bigger term, thing that we're going to see more of the beef on dairy coming into the market 
with the market going down or lower like it is now, and then there's going to be a slow switch back again to doing more of the breeding for with the sex semen to get heifers, and we're going to go through that cycle again, which that eventually could tighten up cow numbers, tighten up milk supply, which then would put, put us to higher prices. All right, great thoughts. Robin, before we uh, let you go, I just want to talk about the livestock arena in general as we manage our risk here before the end of the year. I know the cattle markets have been volatile. Hogs have been tough to look at. Dairy's obviously had its uh, ups and downs. Your thoughts for folks as they kind of put pen to paper here and look at their risk management before the end of the year. Any notes for us? Well, on the beef side, we got to look at if you purchase some feeder cattle, um, of course, if you purchase them earlier and didn't do anything at a higher price, then then we just, you just basically got to hope that we get a little bit of a bounce here. But when you purchase these feeder cattle, take a look out and see what we've got as far as futures are concerned. You know, what's going to work? Um, I'm a large proponent of, well, options for one, for put options. But I think the livestock risk protection insurance is really a great thing as far as the uh, the cattle industry is concerned. You can go out there, you know, like now probably to December or October or November of next year, and you can actually put a livestock risk protection policy in place for a certain amount of head. And uh, it's a floor. It's basically, it's a floor. You got yourself covered. If we go higher, Great. Uh, on the dairy side, something similar, dairy river, revenue protection insurance. And as, as far as I've been doing a lot of put option spreads, you buy one at the money, sell one a dollar and a quarter lower, provides a limited downside protection, but it does provide downside protection. But mainly looking at risk management, I think on the dairy side, the, the livestock side, do a strategy that's going to allow you to get, leave some upside open. You don't want to lock yourself in right now um, because with volatility, with a change in market, uh, emotion, I mean, markets can be driven substantially by emotion uh, for a period of time. And uh, I can just look back at the butter market. Uh, where the emotion that came into that butter market you know, in, um, what was it, like August, and where mm -hmm. it drove it to October to a record high, even when we didn't have the concern we had in, in 2020 of a tight milk market, this was just a leapfrog effect of buyers buying on the what if, and that's what we need to guard against. With that, Robin Schmall with Ag Dairy, Division of John Stewart Associates at agmarket.net. Robin, thanks for joining us today. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. All right. Same to you. Thank you. We'll be back with more AOA right after this. Now. We tend not to think about now. We dream about tomorrow, relive yesterday. But sometimes we don't see what's right in front of us. Victory over cancer is in front of us. Right now, cancer research is saving lives. Cancer research funded by the V Foundation is leading to new discoveries and new treatments, and ultimately, one day, victory over cancer. Right now, one out of every two men and one out of every three women will get cancer in their lifetime. Now is your moment. You may save someone you love. The V Foundation has the skill the speed, and the strength 
to achieve victory over cancer. Because today's cancer research is tomorrow's victory. Learn more at V.org. Don't give up. Don't ever give up. We are the nation's largest integrated healthcare system, providing life-changing care to over 9 million veterans. Our hands are busy, competent, skilled, healing, helping, and friendly. A place where diverse teams come together hand-in-hand to provide full patient-centered care. Working in state-of-the-art facilities with influential leaders in healthcare, all with a single goal in mind, to help veterans heal, recover, and get their lives back in a place where everyone plays a part and where your efforts are truly appreciated. A place so innovative and forward-thinking that we're rebuilding hands and where even robots lend a hand. Join hands with us. Learn more at vacareers.va.gov. This is Around the Table, where we explore the benefits of cooperative ownership. Today, we're talking with Lauren Bucci, a talent acquisition manager with CHS, about employment and internship opportunities in agriculture. Lauren, what career opportunities are available in agriculture and what skills are important to possess? There are really no shortage of opportunities available in the agriculture industry. And here at CHS, opportunities span across a number of different teams and divisions. We have opportunities that support operations in the field, such as working with farmers and growers, roles that support our refineries. And we have countless opportunities at our headquarters here in Invergrove Heights, Minnesota. Those include supply chain, finance, IT, and human resources, just to name a few. In terms of skills that we would look for for future employees, we certainly are looking for someone that has a passion for what it is that they do. But we're also looking for individuals that embody our values of integrity, safety, inclusion, as well as cooperative spirit. Now, is a farming background critical for careers in agriculture? It is not required to have a background in farming. However, many of our roles may look for previous experience in agronomy or related fields, but we have a lot of opportunities across other teams where they're not directly related to farming. I would say as someone myself who does not come from a farming background, I can say with experience that it's a very welcoming industry. What internship opportunities are available at CHS? If there's a full-time opportunity that we offer, there's probably a related internship that you could secure as well. Where can we learn more about internships and career opportunities at CHS? Our career site is going to be the best place to go. If you visit jobs.chsinc.com, you can learn everything that you want to know about both full-time and internship opportunities. Thank you for joining us around the table. Learn more about the benefits of cooperative ownership at cooperativeownership.com. Paid non-attorney spokesperson. Are you over the age of 60 and been diagnosed with lung cancer? If so, you and your family may qualify for a cash award. Our experienced attorneys are standing by to evaluate whether you have a lung cancer claim that qualifies you for a cash award. The consultation is absolutely free and there is no risk and no money out of pocket. We only receive a fee when we secure you and your family a settlement. 250,000 people are diagnosed with lung cancer every year. You're not alone in this battle. We can help make sure that you and your family are financially safe and that 
that medical expenses are covered. Again, if you've been diagnosed with lung cancer and are over age 60, call now. Don't delay. There are deadlines for filing claims. We're standing by 24-7. Call us at 1-844-903-1744. 1-844-903-1744. That's 1-844-903-1744. Attorney Advertising. William Stephacker Jr. is the attorney responsible for this ad. Main office, Grant, Pennsylvania. May not be available in all states. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed. AOA. Now back to Jesse Allen. Well, thanks for sticking with us here today on AOA Agriculture of America. And if you are traveling at all over the next couple of days with the holidays, I hope you uh, get to where you're going safely and soundly and get to enjoy a, a little bit of time with family here during this holiday period uh, upon us. I know. On the farm, that doesn't always work that way. Chores got to get done. Things got to happen in many cases, but hopefully you do get uh, a little bit of time with your family here during the uh, Christmas and uh, New Year's season here as we wrap up 2023. Well, of course, there are still plenty of uh, news uh, items out there that we are paying attention to. The news doesn't stop just because it's the holiday season. Well, with recent house passage of the Whole Milk for Healthy Kids Act, Attention now turns towards the Senate to take action. National Milk Producers Federation Senior Director of Government Relations and Head of Nutrition Policy, Claudia Larson, explains what's next for the legislation in the Senate. Its own version of the whole Milk for Healthy Kids Act was introduced in June of this year by Senator Roger Marshall from Kansas and Senator Peter Welch from Vermont. There are 10 additional Senate co-sponsors, six Republicans through Democrats and one independent. So we do know there is broad bipartisan support for this bill in the Senate. Now, whether or not the Senate picks up its own measure or picks up the House-approved bill, we're not entirely sure, but hopefully we'll see one of those two measures move and we can continue to advance this important bill. Larson says the legislation can improve child nutrition by expanding the milk options schools could serve as part of breakfast and lunch programs. Milk is a nutrition powerhouse. Milk at all fat levels provides 13 essential nutrients, nutrients the kids need to grow and thrive. Yet school-aged children and adolescents are not consuming these vital nutrients, and we must provide kids with healthful options that they will choose to actually drink. So the Whole Milk for Healthy Kids Act is a common-sense approach to address this underconsumption of critical nutrients because it expands the options that schools can choose to serve to include 2% in whole milk. She says parents and children both prefer whole and 2% milk. By increasing access to whole and 2% milk, what we're doing is we're increasing kids' access to the nutritious milk options that are more popular, they're more commonly chosen. A recent survey of American parents actually demonstrates that 8 in 10 parents think the 2% and whole milk are the healthiest options for their kids. They're choosing that for their children at home. And we believe by providing these healthy, popular options at schools, we can continue to see kids consume and intake these vital nutrients. And Larson says there are ways you can help ensure children have access to whole and 2% milk at school. One would be to email, call, write your senator, ask them to support the Whole Milk for Healthy Kids Act, hoping for them to advance either their version or the House-approved version. Another way someone can become an advocate for whole milk would be to become involved in the dietary guidelines updating process, which is in the works right now. Online, you would just go to regulations.gov and then search for the 2025 
dietary guidelines where you can be an advocate for whole milk and really encourage the dietary guidelines process to incorporate this newer science on whole fat milk, which demonstrates its health benefits um, across all ages. And you can learn more online at nmpf.org. Again, that's nmpf.org. That was comments with National Milk Producers Federation Senior Director of Government Relations and Head of Nutrition Policy, Claudia Larson. And uh, we talked about this earlier the week with Jackie Fatka from AgriPulse as well as the uh, bill moved out of the House and then um, Senator Stabenow uh, slowed it down in the Senate. It'll be interesting to see where this goes as we get past the new year. It seems pretty optimistic that this will make it through the Senate, but it's just not going to get that easy passage. It's going to have to be vetted a little more and uh, fully voted on in the Senate. But we're going to continue to watch this as we move into 2024. Well, agribusiness mergers have been a concern for agriculture because they cut down on competition and lead to higher prices for things like inputs. The Justice Department and the Federal Trade Commission issued the 2023 merger guidelines this week describing the factors and frameworks the agencies utilize when reviewing mergers and acquisitions. The new guidelines were released after a two-year process of public engagement and reflect modern market realities and the experience of participants in the marketplace. Attorney General Merrick Garland says, quote, These finalized guidelines provide transparency into how the Justice Department is protecting the American people from ways in which unlawful, anti-competitive practices manifest themselves in the modern economy, end quote. Now, the department also says that competitive markets and economic opportunity for all Americans go hand in hand. Garland was grateful to hear from authors, nurses, farmers, and other concerned citizens from across the country. He said, quote, merger enforcement will be better as a result, end quote. Well, the Environmental Protection Agency announced they will restore the uses of chlorpyrifos and commit to a science-based review of the pesticide. Alan Meadows, an American Soybean Association director, was happy to hear the news, saying, quote, We appreciate this announcement brought about by an Eighth Circuit appeals court decision. EPA's own science has repeatedly found there are at least 11 high-benefit, safe uses of chlorpyrifos, including for soybeans, a fact we will continue to remind the agency of throughout the process, end quote. Now, the announcement is consistent with a November decision from the 8th Circuit Court that found EPA disregarded its own scientists' findings by ending numerous uses of chlorpyrifos they determined were safe. American Sugar Beet Growers Association President Nate Holtgren says growers welcome the return of chlorpyrifos for the upcoming season. Holtgren says, quote, growers need tools like this to reduce economic harm stemming from pests and diseases and are committed to responsible stewardship, end quote. Well, respect for animals, land, and for each other is the foundation of a new campaign launched by Cisco, a food service distribution company, and certified Angus beef. The campaign called Raised with Respect centers on common ground found between cattle producers and beef consumers and focuses on animal welfare and beef sustainability. It was developed as part of a strategic cattle care partnership between Cisco and CAB. The collaboration will focus on supporting producers, equipping them with continuing education to stay current on best management practices and helping to increase consumer confidence in U.S. beef production. Cisco and CAB are providing beef quality assurance training and certification to farmers and ranchers in nine key beef producing states. Bruce Cobb, CAB Executive Vice President of Production, says, quote, BQA is a credible and effective way for producers to communicate animal welfare to people on the opposite end of the beef supply chain, end quote. 
Well, we are out of time here today on AOA Agriculture of America. Thanks again for joining us. Coming up on our next program, we are going to have a uh, best of show for the Christmas holiday. Listen to some of our most uh, recent conversations here that I picked out uh, for us to uh, take a look back at here on the show. So looking forward to that. Thank you as always. Merry Christmas to you and yours. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks for listening to AOA. Every Tuesday, we're sitting around the table, sponsored by CHS, where we'll be talking with folks from throughout the cooperative system. Join us as we discover what makes cooperatives unique when there are more options to do business than ever before. We'll learn how farmers and ranchers like you benefit from a system where decisions are made by the members that own it. Tune in every Tuesday for Around the Table or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. Join us the first Wednesday of every month on AOA for the latest episode of The Monthly Grind with our friends at the National Corn Growers Association. We'll discuss the latest topics surrounding the corn industry, the relationships between corn and other parts of the agricultural supply chain, the newest initiatives and partnerships from NCGA's Market Development Action Team, and much more. That's the first Wednesday of every month for The Monthly Grind on AOA. It's a show you don't want to miss. Times of transition, whether from a sad event or a joyful one, can leave us feeling adrift. Social connections are an important part of a healthy life. Being isolated and lonely can be harmful to your health. It can lead to high blood pressure, a greater risk of heart disease, and early onset dementia. So it's important to build and maintain connections to people, not just in your family, but others whose relationships bring meaning to your life. Trying a new hobby, volunteering, exercising, even using your phone or other device to stay in touch with others. All these can be great ways to keep up your social connections and your physical and mental well-being. Visit connecttoeffect.org to see if you're at risk of social isolation and find ways to get connected. Presented by AARP Foundation with support from United Healthcare.